This episode is brought to you by TalkPython Training. The Six Figure Developer Podcast is all about leveling up your career in the tech space. Learning a little bit of Python will allow you to take your expertise and 10x it with automation, APIs, and even AI. The best place on the internet to learn Python is over at TalkPython Training. Visit talkpython.fm slash sixfigure to find your next level. That's talkpython.fm slash sixfigure. Welcome to the Six Figure Developer Podcast, the podcast where we talk about new and exciting technologies, professional development, clean code, career advancement, and more. I'm John Calloway. I'm Clayton Hunt. And I'm John Ash. With us today is Sean Walker. Sean is a software developer, high-tech entrepreneur, open source advocate, founder of .NET Nuke, and chairman of .NET Foundation Project Committee. Welcome, Sean. Thanks for having me on the show. So uh, why don't you tell us kind of how you got started in the industry, Sean? Wow, that's uh, going back a long ways. <laughs> so yeah, when I got started in the industry, I guess uh, if I go back even to sort of my teen years, um, I was kind of interested in software development. Um, my parents had purchased like a Commodore VIC-20, so that kind of tells you the era of when I started um, Started writing little applications on that, got a Commodore 64, and met, graduated to, of course, PCs in high school. Um, when I went to college, it was all mainframe-based development um, on languages that I no longer want to use. <laughs> and uh, transitioned to the Microsoft platform, I think it was in the late 90s, around 1997, I think. Um, built desktop applications, built classic ASP applications, um, migrated to .NET eventually around 2000, 2001, um, created a, a popular open source content management system called .NET Nuke. Um, and that's where I spent a lot of my time in the next, um, I guess it was 12 years. Um, and then since leaving um, DNN Corp, I've continued on uh, as, a, as a .NET uh, developer and architect. Yeah, .NET Nuke was um, quite the application with quite the following. Um, where does that? What does that leave you working on uh, today? Um, so today, uh, in my day job, <laughs> uh, I work for a company, uh, Soft, Cognizant SoftVision, um, and they work on a, a lot of very large enterprise applications. Um, primarily, though, my focus is still on the Microsoft platform. So, building a lot of single page applications. Um, using typically, you know, .NET Core on the back end and using a languages like Angular or, or like React or Vue on the front end. Um, we're still doing some MVC apps as well. Uh, and there's a lot of uh, large enterprise organizations that are sort of undergoing a, a, a fairly major migration strategy lately, uh, moving, finally moving away from .NET Framework and considering the future on .NET Core. Um, so... Uh, on my personal time, um, I really got excited about some new technology uh, called Blazor. Um, and so I've been working with that for a couple of years now, and I developed uh, an open source application um, that's called Octane. And it's uh, essentially a modular application framework built on Blazor, uh, which is finding quite interesting, quite exciting. 
Yeah, I know that Blazor seems to be all the rage these days and, and seeing a lot of the presentations and a lot of the demos of Blazor have, has really been exciting for myself. And I know Clayton has been quite excited around Blazor. And Clayton, have you even you've started using Blazor at work on certain projects or, or that's just the ultimate goal? Uh, yep, I have actually started using Blazor at work. It is Blazor server side because that was ready sooner. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm hoping to transition that to client side Blazor in the the future, maybe the next year or so. But um, at work for the past, well, since lockdown, uh, all of my work has been Blazor. I have been avoiding the Angular code as much as possible. Yeah, and I think that that's like the 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 fundamental um, thing that is quite appealing to at least a certain group of Microsoft developers, right, is that, you know, they're quite familiar with C-sharp, they feel comfortable in that environment, and the fact that you can build a full-stack application, right, with C-sharp back-end and front-end, I mean, a single-page application kind of model is really exciting. I mean, that's what kind of got me hooked as well, just plus plus the whole componentization, right, the, the fact that it relies heavily on um, components and the fact that you can reuse those components in a lot of different ways is really I don't know, it harkens back to the days of, you know, web forms, if I could say that. But, you know, web forms had a really great component story around it. A lot of great third-party components were developed that developers could leverage. And I feel like, you know, Blazor brings all that back again, because we were kind of missing out on that in the Microsoft ecosystem for a while. I don't, I don't mind making the user controls. It's fine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So actually, yeah. So, was, you know, when I saw the um, the Blazor component model, I kind of saw how I could create an application that had similar characteristics to what DNN provided. And that same sort of a, you know, component-based modular architecture. So I created a proof of concept um, based on on that. I, I, that was really early on. So that was like before Blazor, even Blazor server shipped. Um, I think it was in November of 2018 is when I first got involved with Blazor. That was a bit of a painful time to get involved because every you know, preview release had major breaking changes in it. And so you'd build sort of a proof of concept and then the next release would come out and it would break it. But that was, you know, that's what you got to expect in those early stages. And uh, it was still, it was, it was a good exercise to go through because I kind of, I learned a lot about the fundamentals of how Blazor works as a result of that. Um, and, and it was interesting what you touched upon there, like about the fact that you're using the server side model because it was, you know, available um, from Microsoft as a fully supported product sooner um, I've heard a lot of people that are actually using, especially server-side Blazor for internal apps, right, within their organization. Um, maybe not consumer-facing apps, but, you know, internal apps. And uh, people find it really productive to work in that environment. Oh, yeah, that's that's what we're doing with it. it but it, it can be very, very productive. So much easier to work with than, than some of the... Um, the JavaScript frameworks as far as figuring out what's gone wrong. Uh, I will say that my personal projects are all uh, Blazor WebAssembly. Yep. And then I switch over to doing work uh, on Blazor server side. And the way that you try to figure out what's gone wrong is completely different. Mm-hmm. And I'll spend half an hour wondering why my console.write line statements aren't ending up in the uh, F12 <laughs> console for yeah. the browser, yeah. browser and then be like yeah. oh mm-hmm. that's right <laughs> i can just set a breakpoint <laughs> yeah yeah that's um that was definitely one of the benefits of 
of Blazor server was the the richer debugging experience, like right from the start. Of course, that that model because it's server side was all fully supported within Visual Studio and VS Code, like right from the start. And um, so, setting breakpoints within your you know front end component code and stepping through that's all no problem with Blazor server. Um, so yeah, I, I still, I mean, for for development, um, I still prefer to run in that environment myself. <laughs> and then, um, like, as long as you architect your application in the right way, right, and you pay attention to the fact that it's a client server application, most of the things that you develop Blazor server should run in Blazor WebAssembly. Um, the only time you get tripped up is if you try to, you know, take advantage of resources that which wouldn't be available in the browser. Um, Octane, that was one of the goals right from the start was. We, I wanted it to run on both Blazor Server and Blazor WebAssembly without, you know, any changes. Initially, the only way I could get that to happen was um, you'd have to like switch into a conditional compilation kind of mode in Visual Studio and compile it under each different hosting model. Um, but since then, we've figured out how to actually get it to run just by changing one um, config file setting. Um, so it's the same code exactly the same code and basically you just change a one setting in a config file and you can run it either way that was important because i was i was hoping that uh, eventually you could create like an ecosystem around octane similar to what dnn had because in dnn a lot of people created third party modules and i felt like once it gets more complicated and you have to target modules at different runtime environments it gets really complicated from an end user perspective and from a development perspective and so i thought i mean i'd rather have a model that works in both hosting models. I'm glad that Microsoft has continued to support that because I'm not sure if that was something that they planned from the start. Is making sort of a you know making it possible to have a seamless transition between the two different hosting models. Yeah, the only issue that I've run into where the code has to be different is uh, with HTTP calls, like Blazor WebAssembly. They've got these really nice extension methods for post JSON async or you know get JSON async, and those don't exist on server side. So I actually ended up writing my own extensions to use the IHTTP IHTTP client factory to pull data in the same way, so that when I when I switch over to client to WebAssembly, all I have to do is just not include the reference to my REST extensions. Uh, have right. you had to do something similar for yours, or or we're yeah, so we're using the the client side sort of Blazor HTTP client um, on both both hosting models. So yeah, so using those you know those extension methods, they work equally well on both server side and client side. Some people might say that like. Um, so I've had this debate actually with Dan Roth from Microsoft. But so in order to make Octane run both client and server, uh, it, like WebAssembly and, and Blazor server, um, I had to write the application as a client server model, meaning like all of the interaction from the, the, the front end happens over, you know, HTTP endpoints, right? You're still calling web APIs. And so even if you're running on Blazor server, <laughs> you're still making, you know, Sort of, you're still round tripping over the HTTP kind of stack, right? To to retrieve data and stuff, which seems a little crazy. Um, however, that that was the way to make the application run in both hosting models, kind of seamlessly. What he was suggesting that would be a better approach, probably for performance purposes, is you know if you're running on Blazor server, 
do direct database calls because you can in that environment. And if you're running on you know, WebAssembly, then rely on the HTTP services. But it makes the overall architecture a bit more complicated if, if you want to do that. Yeah, that's the same conclusion I had, <laughs> is to treat it yeah. as if it was a WebAssembly application just from the start. Right. Yeah. And I haven't really noticed any performance issues as a result of doing that. Mm-mm. No, I, I was um, I was trying to recreate uh, Monogame with Blazor. And okay. uh, so I started a project and I actually started it with Blazor server-side. And um, I didn't stay Blazor server-side for very long, but while I was Blazor server-side, I mean, I could run the game. I could play, you know, the the little demo game that I had going and I didn't have any issues with performance. I'm sure on scale it would have gotten there, but just the the communication lane seems really, really quick, at least to get started. Yeah, I think that's sort of unfortunate that um, early on some developers sort of came to the conclusion that Blazor Server was not really a viable technology, right? It was, they just basically heard the word SignalR and said, okay, this is like not scalable. (laughs) Um, And in fact, um, I I know a lot of people who actually prefer the Blazor server model over the WebAssembly model, just for some of the reasons that you mentioned, right? For development and debugging. And and, and in fact, like if you're you're running or building an internal app with a a user base that you can kind of quantify, right? So you know kind of the volume that you expect, It'll be able to handle the needs no problem, and it, it's it's actually quite quite scalable more than people think. I must admit I haven't really kept up on the progress of Blazor in the last six months, eight months, whatever since since the WebAssembly went GA earlier this year. Honestly, that was in May. Yeah, are there still performance concerns, or are there are there things to keep in mind as you're developing a solution using Blazor? Uh, yeah, there still is performance concerns, I guess. Microsoft has been working on some of those concerns over the last six months, right? So that uh, in .NET 5, which is coming out in a, less than a month, um, there is a lot of great improvements there, like in a number of areas. Like, for example, um, optimizing the download size of DLLs in the framework, you know, libraries that need to be transferred to the browser and WebAssembly. That's one big step. And and using like more advanced zip compression um, to zip those up so that, you know, again, there's less bandwidth consumed to transfer them over. Um, also, the initial JSON serializer that they created, which I think was motivated by Blazor, um, because JSON.net didn't work natively in the browser because of reflection and some other issues. They created, a, you know, that system.text.json serialization library. Initially, it wasn't very optimized, I don't think, for performance. So they've made a lot of performance improvements in that area as well. And so, again, I mean, that'll benefit primarily, I guess, Blazor WebAssembly. But if you're using an architecture like we were just talking about, it would benefit Blazor Server as well. Yeah, so and there is a lot of performance improvements that are coming. Um, we actually already... So we had, we had like a super simple um, upgrade from .NET, 3, .NET Core 3.1 to .NET 5 for, for Octane, like... I think that there was like one line of code that needed to be changed. And then, of course, all of the project references needed to be upgraded to the uh, to .NET 5. But other than that, it was like super easy. I was actually shocked at how easy it was. And maybe that's because obviously, you know, Blazor's newer technology and it was already 
it had already come a long ways, right? By the by the time um, it was released in May, as you know, as the WebAssembly release. I, but uh, I think a lot of people they see like a version number or like a big jump to .NET five, and they are assuming that it's going to be a, a big upgrade challenge. Um, that that was my assumption, <laughs> right? And I was really pleasantly surprised to find out that it was a, a pretty seamless upgrade experience. Speaking of Octane, um, so knowing that that you've you I mean you've already compared it to uh, .NET Nuke, um, uh, kind of as the inspiration, right? .NET Nuke being the inspiration. Um, yep. If I remember correctly, forgive me if I don't. It has been quite a while, but uh, .NET Nuke was almost uh, drag and drop. Like you'd you'd pick your your widget or or your component, and you would place it on the screen uh, mm-hmm. in order of the other things that were already on the page, and right. then boom, it was there. You could run the application and see you know the thing that you had made. Mm-hmm. Um, how close is Octane to that experience? Can you is is it drag and drop? Almost, or is it completely different in that respect? No, it's 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 similar in that respect. So it uses the same sort of a, what you see is what you get kind of front end development technique, where you create virtual pages, um, and then those pages have a, a theme that you can apply to them, and the theme defines you know different areas in in the layout where you can place different types of content. Um, and then you have a control panel that you can, you know, once you're logged in as a privileged user, right, you can bring up the control panel and you can choose from different um, modules. We still called the modules that are available and you can choose where you want to place them on that page. And again, it's just saving configuration data to the database behind the scenes and everything is completely dynamic. So in that sense, it's exactly the same way, exactly the same model as, as DNN. It, it, it's, I don't. I wouldn't say it's drag and drop because we actually haven't introduced true drag and drop where you can, you know, drag things around. That's completely possible in Blazor. I've seen demos of that, but um, uh, we haven't actually introduced the, the, the true drag and drop yet. But you can you can definitely choose things dynamically and add them to the page, and it works exactly the same way as DNN. Okay, nice. Yeah. So in in a sense, like it's. I mean, it's definitely like a headless framework. It's so I mean a lot of people talk about headless CMSs now, right? So it's got that whole aspect to it, um, but then it's got the whole front end as well, where you can build out your your pages, um, and it's also got an administrative side to it as well, with a control panel with a lot of administrative functionality for managing users and roles and you know sites because it is all multi-tenant and and all of those kind of capabilities as well. I would say that I I definitely took advantage of a lot of the conceptual ideas that you know that were built as part of DNN uh, but of course implemented them in a totally different way because um, DNN is actually still built on web forms right? in using a, like very monolithic with a you know tied directly to a you know a database backend so from an architecture perspective octane's a lot different yeah now with the with the headless API, um, mm-hmm. I guess you you are providing a a front end client, but presumably since it's a headless API, someone could go off the rails and make their own client uh, using whatever they want. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, they could. They could even build a a client in like Angular or React if they wanted to. I don't know. I mean, you'd <laughs> you'd of course 
need to sort of take advantage of the concepts that are present in the API. <laughs> but yeah, there would be no reason why you couldn't do something like that. In fact, I've kind of been experimenting. Like, and I know this isn't um, the, the way that you should use Blazor. Um, certainly, like we just talked about, the main benefit of using Blazor is it's C-sharp, right? C-sharp on the front end. But um, essentially, components are just C-sharp containers. There's no reason why you couldn't actually run Angular or React, like JavaScript within them, to if you wanted to take that kind of an approach. Like the, and that was some like one of the um, extensibility points that DNN had. The fact that it was web forms wasn't always such a, a big limiting factor because you could actually write um, SPA-based modules even in DNN because it was just it just used like a user control as a wrapper. <laughs> That's about it. Once that was rendered to the page, could it, it was just HTML, right? And from that point on, you know, you could build it out like a single page application. Uh, how does somebody go about creating a new Octane component? Is it is it just a Blazor component, or is it um, is there is there more to it? So it is just a Blazor component. There is a base class that uh, is built into the framework that you would have to inherit from in order to get access to some of the sort of helper methods that are available. Like for example, like if you're running a module within the environment, there's certain state, certain aspects of state that are available on a page into the module that are passed in via this base class. So. Um, depending on how complicated your module is, I mean, you could just have a module which is simply just a razor component. However, most modules are more elaborate than that. They typically would have some kind of a back end as well, so some server side component that's part of it as well. Um, and so we tried to make it really easy to be able to create modules. In fact, so if you're in the Blazor, in the Octane environment, and you're logged in as the you know, the sort of main administrator. Um, there's something called a module creator, which you just add to a page and you fill out some basic information, like the name of the module and what it does. And it'll actually scaffold out all of the code to create the module for you with all of the the, the, the project file, solution file, everything. So, And that way it can be like completely external to the Octane solution itself. So then you can open that as its own solution develop it, and then it even has batch scripts to deploy the DLLs into the Octane bin so that you can then run it. So the, we thought that that was like a good way of trying to get people up and running really, really quickly. And and with sort of best practices, it's like, so it's got all of the, the main interfaces and things like that all stubbed out and, you know, with partial implementation so that you're not like guessing too much. Plus, of course, on on GitHub, there's a bunch of example modules too that you could like you know you could clone and an experiment with as well so is is that the the preferred structure is kind of one well you said module so is it is it a module with with many components or is it yeah usually it could be one but usually it's more than one yeah so usually a mod module is comprised of so one main component which is sort of represented in the view of your page and then you can surface as many other components as you want that are linked to that main module. Um, that could, like, typically you might have like a view component that displays content, and then a button that lo launches like an editor, right? So that you could enter some fields. That's another component. Um, there's a settings component. You can have as many components actually as you want um, that are all linked to the same sort of module instance. 
it, it, it in that sense it works very similarly to um to to dot net nuke um and, and in fact like even even the way the routing works is very similar of course octane needed to to you to build a custom router um that was i think one of the the more challenging things that i had to tackle very early on cuz in like november of 2018 there was like no examples of how to do any of that um the only thing you could do is sort of pull down the the code out of github <laughs> and try to see how the microsoft based router worked um and it had so much code in it um in the end the octane router is a component it's like a it's one component like it's super simple <laughs> it, it actually writing a, a like a a custom router for blazer is not complicated in the end but it, it, it it's not that easy to see that <laughs> when you look at the uh you know the source code that microsoft provides for their router <laughs> yeah i've i've been in there i actually have a um a fledgling cms uh project in blazer as well and it's for my purposes i literally copied the microsoft router and then just made the okay. changes that i needed to make to it because i was looking at all the stuff i was like nope i need this line <laughs> and we'll just, just go from there yeah 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 no I, I mean when you get into the internals it's actually not that complicated even how their router works right it's it's just like iterating through the bin and looking for you know page attributes right and loading up the route table it's not that complicated but yeah, if you want to do something like like you were saying, if you want to do like a CMS, you probably want to take control of the router and do things a little more differently, right? Because their 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 router is pretty simplistic, and right? it's just very static in in the way that it works. Yeah, I do wish that it had relative routes. That would that would make my day for you know general applications. So like the 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 Octane modules, can they eventually be uh, NuGet packages? Yep. Okay, and then how do yeah. you how do you import? Well, so like so, I've added the NuGet package to my um, Octane client, and maybe to the server. But what do you have to do to tell the server that this is yeah. a new set of modules? Yeah, so this is where things are a little bit complicated. I think, especially so if you if you came from the DNN world um, where DNN had you know a, a a module packaging concept, right, where you you basically zipped up the files that were part of a module and you included a, a file which we called the manifest file and then to install that you would simply like you'd have to upload that right through the user interface uh, of .net nuke and it would extract the files all to the appropriate locations right and register it and then it would be available so if you if you have never um, had any experience with .net nuke right and you're more familiar with nuget in its typical form right where you're pulling down packages from NuGet while you're doing software development, um, it's a very different, that's a totally different concept, right? NuGet was never designed to be like a runtime deployment methodology, right? It, it's meant for development, right? So you, you pull down packages. The way it works behind the scenes is all based on, on software development. Um, and it's, it does a ton of magic behind the scenes, right? When you decide to publish an application, right? It figures out where all these NuGet package references are locally and it figures out which DLLs need to be shipped as part of your application. So we're not using NuGet in that way. So for, for Octane, like when you build a module, um, we're still using NuGet in the sense that you package up all of the 
necessary bits, which are essentially just DLLs and some of the static resources like CSS files and JavaScript files. And that's all being bundled up into a NuGet file, which is essentially a zip file. And we're using like the new spec format, which is essentially the manifest, right? And you would upload that to your .NET or sorry, to your Octane environment. And it's doing the same thing. It's extracting those files to the bin and the necessary locations and registering it. So it's using, and actually we have a little bit, we have even the capability where you can actually, as a, as a component, or sorry, as a module creator, you would build your, your module and package it up as a NuGet package, actually put it on NuGet.org, and then from the Octane application, if you go to the, the module installation screen, it'll actually pull down a list of all of the modules that are available in NuGet, and you can just say install, and it'll download it automatically and install it for you. So it, it's using NuGet, but like it's something for, I've noticed that developers who are just trying to get started with Octane, it's hard for them to wrap their head around that because they're used to using NuGet in a different way, right? Using it more in a development scenario than a runtime scenario. Right. It's, it's definitely a different feeling. Uh, but yeah. you're saying that you can go to the uh, admin portal that's on the server, mm-hmm. or that is part of the server portion of Octane, and yeah. uh, there's a thing you can search NuGet packages for modules that you want and then install yep. them right there. Mm-hmm. How does that how does that end up on the client? Do you have to do it traditionally on the client or is there like the actual CMS? Yeah, so when you're when you're writing under WebAssembly, it's still it so it downloads so it would go to NuGet and it would download the the NuGet package and that NuGet package would contain a client DLL, uh, probably a shared DLL and a server DLL. It would extract all of those to the bin folder on the server. And then when the application restarts, um, the client is actually going to request any DLLs that are Octane modules from the server and download them to the client. It, it, so that none of that is possible. Like none of that is automatic by Blazor itself. That was all custom code that we had to build to be able to to pull down other assemblies. Um, and so it, it downloads them to the client and it loads them into the app domain in the browser. So some of this stuff was actually quite quite complicated to figure out. And I, I'm very grateful that I at least had access to some of the members of the the ASP.NET Core team, right, that were working on Blazor. Like, it's amazing how much time was saved by just asking Steve Sanderson or Dan Roth a question. Because <laughs> I, I would have spun my wheels like a long time on some of that stuff. And you've been part of the .NET community for a long time, and people know you, and you know the te- the team members there that are building the software that are that we're all using. Uh, I see that Octane is part of the .NET Foundation. You yourself have uh, workings with the .NET Foundation. I think we haven't really had a show dedicated to the .NET Foundation for a couple of years. We we had John Galloway on a okay, while ago, yeah. but you want to maybe tell us about your your work with the foundation and and what's going on there. Okay, sure. Like, uh, yeah. So I've been involved with the foundation since 2014, um, basically since it got started. Um, and I was the sort of chair of the advisory council in the early years, and so I'd actually meet weekly with the executive director. Initially, it was Martin Woodward, and then it transitioned to John Galloway, um, and then it transitioned to to Claire Novotny. Most recently, um, and, and more recently. Um, there was a lot of changes in the foundation, right? There's a, an independent board that was elected. Um, 
the last board brought in the notion of committees. And so I, I transitioned over to working on the project committee. Um, and so I'm, I'm leading the project committee and that committee is mostly responsible for renew or for reviewing um, applications for projects that would like to join the foundation, um, and then offering you know what any type of I guess support that um, that the, the projects need. There's actually a lot of work that goes on behind the scenes when it comes to the foundation, uh, and there's not a lot of volunteers, and also not a lot of resources either like financially or otherwise. So um, it, it's actually quite amazing how much the foundation actually does to support the .NET ecosystem. Um, probably it does more than people get, give it credit for. Um, but uh, I can understand like the .NET ecosystem is a passionate place. A lot of, uh, you know, a lot of interesting folks with different opinions on things. Um, and so I guess over the last geez, six or seven years that I've been involved, um, I've seen a lot. <laughs> and uh, I, I guess I've been happy to volunteer and contribute. Sometimes it's been it's been a challenge, right? Because it's certainly, you know, taking time away from other things that I that I have commitments to as well. Um, but I think it's been a worthwhile and I've met a lot of great people through my work at the foundation. And it's I think that there's a, still a lot more potential for it, though, as well. The new board that was recently elected a few months ago has pretty strong ideas on on new directions that it could go and how it could support projects better and and I really look forward to some of those materializing if possible. Well, I started coming into my own as a developer during the Balmer years. So that, that some would say that's during the the evil time of, of Microsoft. <laughs> and yep. if, if you go on certain certain segments of Twitter and, and read, there are those that think that Microsoft is still the evil corporation that it may may or may not have been in, in years mm -hmm. past. Yeah, um, and especially with a lot of transition moving into open source, acquiring GitHub, those types of moves, I think people are still somewhat skeptical about the the intent there. If if the .NET Foundation has any say over that story, what is it that that the foundation can provide, and what does it mean for a project to become a member of the foundation? What does it mean for individuals to uh, to contribute, to volunteer, to get involved? Yeah, I, I think that one thing that is still very misunderstood when it comes to the .NET Foundation is that it, it is an independent entity, right? Completely independent from Microsoft. Um, if I go back to 2014, you know, the motivations for creating the foundation were probably different at that point in time. Microsoft was looking for a way that they could actually embrace open source more. And, and in order to do that, they needed a place where they could transfer IP out of Microsoft, right? So they needed to move ASP.NET Core and, and MVC and things like that out of Microsoft so that it would allow both Microsoft engineers to work on open source projects because that was not even possible or legal before um, and allow the community to participate as well and contribute to to the you know the Microsoft open source projects. Um, however, at the same time, there was also an opportunity, right, for other .NET based open source projects to become part of the foundation. Um, and I think it's you know only in the last two years, I guess, two or three years that that the true independence of the .NET Foundation has really come to light in the fact that the board is mostly represented, except for I think you know 
while it was only one Microsoft member in the last board, in the new board, there's there's actually two, but um, both of them, well, Bill Wagner, who's he is a Microsoft employee, but he's on the board operating as an independent, right? So, his, you know, for the most part, the the feelings and the decisions that are made by the .NET Foundation are independent from Microsoft. And people don't realize that because partly because of the origins I just described and partly because like the largest projects that are part of the foundation are Microsoft projects. Um, the, the other thing about the foundation is that, you know, it doesn't sort of, it doesn't get involved in the projects, right? It allows projects to become members, but it doesn't then tell the maintainers of those projects that they have to operate them in a certain way. Yes, there's a code of conduct and some basic guidelines, but I mean, it's not getting involved in dictating the roadmap or, you know, it's not heavy handed when it comes to the projects that are members, right? And so because of that, you have to realize Microsoft is the maintainer of the Microsoft projects in the foundation. Microsoft is going to manage those projects as it sees fit. Whereas, you know, other projects that are part of the foundation, like .NET Nuke or Octane or whatever else, you know, they operate in a similar manner. So the only time that the foundation theoretically would get involved is if there was a project that was part of the foundation that was offered under a open source license, and then that license became more restrictive, or maybe the maintainers of that project tried to make it more restrictive. In those cases, then, you know, the rights of the .NET ecosystem are being taken away, and that's where the foundation really needs to kind of step in and try to come to some kind of a resolution, because the reason why, one of the reasons why people should trust .NET foundation-based projects is because they are protecting those rights. Right, they are providing that sort of confidence that you can use those projects indefinitely. But of course, there's you know always going to be challenges. And I think one of the biggest challenges right now in the .NET ecosystem when it comes to open source is the sustainability of some of these smaller open source projects. There's a lot of maintainers that are investing a ton of time and effort and not seeing the rewards. And it's, it's too bad because, I mean, eventually those folks are going to burn out. Right. And people are looking to the foundation to try and find a way to solve that problem. I don't think there's an easy solution, but um, there, there are at least some good discussions going on around that. So what about any resources for any of the items we discussed? Blazor, Octane, uh, maybe DNN uh, or the .NET Foundation itself? Yeah, we've talked about a lot of things. So uh, obviously on the .NET Foundation website, there's a lot of information about um, and and in fact, it's you know the messaging is undergoing some changes recently. I think the new board actually uh, is trying to introduce perhaps a new mission statement, um, and I think that that's actually been published so that people can comment on it and provide some feedback. I think that was published like last week, so that'd be you know a great place for people to get started. You know, because part of the reason why I think why the Dyna Foundation isn't well understood is because people haven't taken the time to you know, explore the messaging that's even there currently, um, let alone, you know, how that messaging could change in the future. Um, the the .NET um, Foundation Project Committee, which is the group that I'm involved in, we um, published a charter which outlines some of the basic um, guidelines that we sort of expect for projects that want to become a, a member of the foundation, and that's in GitHub um, on the project committee page. Uh, if you want to learn more about 
Octane. You, there's, you know, the on GitHub, github.com slash Octane. Um, there's an organization there with a, a number of different repos that are underneath it. So you can, of course, see all of the, uh, the different code and, and, and uh, clone it and whatever if, they, if you want to do that. Um, what else did we cover? Oh, Blazor. I mean, there's a lot of great information available on Blazor. Even I would, even I'm quite impressed with the level of documentation around Blazor that Microsoft has produced at this point. Like if you go in the, in the documentation repo for Blazor, you'll find a ton of great stuff. It seems like, I don't know if you know how they're doing that, keeping it so up to date um, all the time. But I mean, it, it's, it seems like the responsibility is even on the, the product managers and people at that level, right. To make sure that the documentation is always up to date. Um, and then there's a lot of great passionate sort of community members that um, are involved with blazer, like that, that don't work for Microsoft and you can find those pretty easily on, on Twitter. Yeah. I think they've got some uh, tech writers probably locked up in a dungeon somewhere. That's how they keep that page <laughs> up to date. Yeah. So you've noticed that too, right? Like the docs are great. Oh yeah. Every, every time <laughs> I've been like, how do I do this new? Th- oh, there it is right there on the, on the docs. Yeah. Um, what has been helpful in your career that you might share with those just getting started or those looking to level up their careers? One of the sort of misconceptions maybe about being in the tech industry is that it's all about writing code. <laughs> and um, yes, that's true to some extent. <laughs> and I mean, I think most of us probably wish we got the opportunity to write more code, but the reality is we end up doing a lot of different things, right? You And some of the fundamentals of just having good communication and being a good writer and just, you know, uh, being able to manage your time and and manage your workload. And there's so many things that are part of being a successful developer um, that are beyond the code um, that I, you know, I can't emphasize that enough to people, Um, especially if you're young and you think that, you know, sitting in the dark and, and cranking out source code is, you know, the be all and end all. in order to be the other thing to be successful in tech, you constantly need to be learning new things, right? The the industry moves so fast and, um, and often you're not going to get the opportunity through your, your day job to explore new cool stuff. So you have to take the initiative yourself to learn about new things and broaden your horizons or else you're going to get left behind. Um, and I don't know if there's, I'm certain there's other careers that are similar to that, but I mean, there's also careers where, you know, the the, the, uh, the fundamentals don't change very often. Um, that's not the tech world, right? The tech world is constantly being disrupted and changed and, and you've got to adapt. Absolutely. I, I <laughs> wish you could just sit in a dark room and write code. That'd be nice. Uh, yeah. Do you have any social media accounts that you'd like to share with our listeners? Um, so, yeah, I am on Twitter at, at SB Walker. Um, I'm not super active on there, but I try to use it for... Um, you know, sharing noteworthy things that are going on in the .NET ecosystem. Um, I also use uh, LinkedIn quite a lot. Um, and in fact, if people reach out to me and to, you know, associate with me on LinkedIn, I almost always accept invitations. So that's, I'm not very active on any other form of social media. And I don't want to, <laughs> I could go into a long story on that, but um, <laughs> yeah, suffice to say, I'm just, not keen on some of the other social media channels at this point. All right, Sean, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. That was Sean Walker. Sean is a software developer, high tech entrepreneur, open source advocate, 
founder of .NET Nuke, chairman of the .NET Foundation Project Committee. If you like this episode, please like, rate, and review on iTunes. Find show notes, blog posts, and more at sixfiguredev.com. And catch us live each week on Twitch, and be sure to follow us on Twitter at SixFigureDev. This has been another episode of the Six Figure Developer Podcast, helping others reach their potential. I am John Calloway. I'm Clayton Hunt. And I'm John Ash. <laughs>